0: Kino Cummies on Cape Talk.
1: Yep, thank heavens it's not tomorrow yet. At least you can still look forward to tomorrow today. Right here on today. And we are joined by none other
2: than Dr. 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 Because he's got three of those. Christmas, how are you doing? Morning, I'm, I'm pretty good actually. Yeah, and I've also been diligent, done my homework, you'll be pleased to hear. You have? Yeah, Um. I, I'm definitely I'm right. on the right lines with the sunrise, sunset. Uh, at least one person has written to me to say, yep, looks good and if you look at the numbers and look at the uh predictions on a computer model it agrees with the point we're making which is the inclination of the earth 23 and a half degrees you would expect the sun to rise to the south of you um uh, and set to the sort of south of you despite the fact that uh you're, you're in cape town uh most of the year round anyway so that one was okay not much joy on the i taste metal under certain circumstances a couple of people have said that they get this as an occasional weird sensation that comes on for no reason people wrote to me about that but i think it's it's possibly the chemical equivalent or the taste equivalent of synesthesia and this is where when people are presented with one sort of sensory information might be say thinking of the day of the week or a certain number they can taste that particular number uh, and it might be that there's, there's something like that going on, but I haven't got to the bottom of, of it yet in terms of people putting certain things on their fingers and then being able to taste other, other sensations. But I'll keep probing. Absolutely. And thanks for all the homework you've done and we'll shoot straight into the first question.
1: Good
3: morning. I've got a question for the naked scientist. I want to know, and I've wanted to know for so long, why do they shave sheep in winter when it's cold and not in summer? Thanks. Cheers.
1: That's a cute question. Chris.
2: Well, obviously, the the sheep grow their, their fleece over an annual cycle and it gets really big and bulky. And then they take the fleece off when it's ready to be harvested and sent off to turn into wool. So um, I think that the sheep, if it was going to cope particularly badly with having its fur removed and hair removed, when when it is, then then we wouldn't be doing it that way because it's a tradition that's been going on for hundreds to thousands of years. So I don't know why the particular time of year is chosen, other than it must coincide with when it's best to uh, harvest the most wool from the sheep in the most practical way, and they cope okay with it. Great, and a very good morning to you. Um,
3: I'd just like to correct Chris. I feel so proud of myself. <laughs> The reason the sheep are shorn when they are shorn is because it's lambing time, and the ewes then know that it's cold and they will take steps to protect their lambs.
2: Okay, Chris. Mm, oh well, I'm intrigued. That sounds fascinating. But how do the how how does that work? Is it just because the sheep feel colder because they've got less hair, and so they're, because they're colder, they yes, well, they're, they're more too. protective towards the lambs? Is that how it works?
3: that too but it's to prevent them from wandering into waters and streams and all sorts of things where they shouldn't be when they have lambs
2: are are they really that stupid <laughs> i mean it sounds it just sounds yes. <laughs> nuts that you you have to tell a wild animal not not to wander into well, a river see, when it's got have, young animals it just seems mad well
3: you see if they have all this hair they don't feel the the cold if they get into a river or a stream or something we don't really have big rivers around here but or getting into streams or into gold cold spots. However, when they are shorn they feel the cold the same as their lambs do and that's why they are shorn that's when they are shorn. Interesting.
2: I wonder how they evolved to be that stupid. It just that must take some effort, mustn't it?
3: You also have to remember that the sheep have come a long way genetically because of our interference. I mean if they were in the wild they probably wouldn't grow such a big
2: cluster of wool. Yeah, that's, that's very true. I mean, we have forced their evolution, haven't we, in terms of what we've done by domesticating them. That's absolutely true. Yep. But but at what stage along the journey, I wonder, did we cause them to, to shed half their brain cells? I mean, that, that's, um, that's a harder <laughs> argument to yep. make. Well,
3: they would have
2: probably more if we hadn't <laughs>
1: Probably, that's United, true. Uh, Chris, you've started something now. I can now see every second sheep being named Donald. Please. <laughs> Anyway, and have a wonderful day. Thanks for the call. Uh, Let's go to Courtney. Courtney is in Bruckenfell. You are listening to The Naked Scientist. Hi, Courtney.
3: Hi there, first time caller. Welcome. Anyone have a sense of mathematics? Like, you saw your mother duck, she'll kind of count the ducks in a way, make sure all of them are there. So, how does that develop?
1: Counting ability of ducks.
2: I don't think it's that good. I, I think they actually aren't just doing maths to work out they've got the right number. I think they're using a range of different things, including the calls. And the the evidence for this is: I remember when I was about eighteen, nineteen years old, I was I was trying to revise for my A levels so I could get to university, and I was sitting there, and I could hear this noise, this fran- frantic quacking noise coming from the road outside my house. And in the end, because it was so persistent, I went to have a look, and what had happened is a duck had taken her clutch of ducklings for a walk along the road. And the road was very quiet in those days. There was no danger of being run over. And some helpful road worker had put a manhole drain cover there in the edge of the road to to take away the rainwater. And the duck hadn't figured that her ducklings were smaller than the gaps between the gratings, but her feet were bigger. So if she went across the drain, no problem. But the ducks went plop, plop, plop. And, and every other duckling, because depending upon where their feet were landing on the gr- gr- gratings, were going down into the drain. And so the duck had started with seven ducklings. And by the time she got to the other side of the drain, she had three. And the other four were swimming round in the bucket in the drain. And, and they were making such a racket that the duck had stopped. And she could obviously hear that her clutch was not right because she could hear the cries and hear that they weren't the right sorts of cracking noises and that there was distress going on and as a result she'd, she'd stopped to allow them to come so i i think that there's a combination of factors i, I think may, maybe animals can do a bit of what's called sabotaging where they can make an approximation for numbers and animals can do this quite well and that we'll perhaps get into that in a minute but i think the ducks are also integrating other information such as the sounds, they, the, the duck calls, the ducklings call back and, and then also if something goes wrong they make distress noises which rains the mother in and she'll go back and, and round them up. Uh, I did help the ducklings out. We managed to lever up the drain lid. It was very heavy and then used a fishing net to get them that were swimming around in the drain. outside. we got them out and, um, and then they went off on their merry way. So that, that was the, the happy end of the story. But animals can do this thing called sabotising we know for instance if i hold up five fingers and or, or five objects and i say to you how many x did you see have a guess you will instantly without ever having been taught any maths you'll, you'll know what that number is and what it means and animals can do the same sort of thing and it gets to about five or six you're pretty good at sizing up scale or numbers when up to about five or six by somehow recording a, a visual impression and knowing roughly what the numbers are Dogs can do it. People have done experiments on dogs where you show them their food bowl, you put a a cover in the way, but you show them yourself adding a certain number of food items to the dish. The dogs are then given the dish, but if you surreptitiously remove some of the food from the dish, say you put five biscuits in, the dog is expecting five biscuits, but you've removed three, so the dog only gets two biscuits. The researchers have timed the dog's uh, assessment of the bowl when the cover is removed and it can actually see what's in the dish. And dogs seem to look for much longer at the contents of their dish when they're expecting five biscuits, but there were two in there. As though to say, hang on a minute, something's not right here. I counted five and there's only two in here. So animals do have this ability up to a certain amount. The reason that dogs can count their dog biscuits and ducks can count their ducklings, obviously that there, there is a, a benefit if you can do that. But if you're a pack animal, like a, a dog comes from a pack and pack dogs come from wolves, when you work as a social group in that way, being able to size up the scale of the opposition will make the difference between life and death. Because if there's more of them than there are of you and you start a ruck, uh, they're going to win and you're going to come off badly. Whereas if you know that there are more of you than there are of them, then you, you have a much higher chance of, of coming off the winners. And for that reason, animals have evolved to have this ability to assess, ass, assess and estimate quite accurately size and scale of things. And that may also extend to, to how many babies they're expecting to have. But thanks for the lovely question.
1: Are you listening to that wonderful voice? Well, it belongs to Dr. Chris Smith, the Naked Scientist. You can call in and ask any questions about anything that you've seen in life and you've got questions about it. Put those questions to him. He'll give you a lovely scientific twist to it as well. Uh, we'll go to Martin in the West Coast. A lot of people responding to the sheep story, by the way. Uh, Donald the sheep. Martin, good morning. Good morning.
3: Somebody's pulling the wool over your eyes on the sheep. <laughs>
1: You're funny. Go for it.
3: Okay. Um, I always thought it was so that the sheep could concentrate more on fattening
1: itself up than growing wool. That's my idea. Okay. Okay. Thank you okay. for that Thank you for that, one, Martin. We've got a lot of people wanting to, to talk about the sheep.
2: It's more uh, rapidly turning the... into sheep talk, not cape talk, isn't it? Yeah, I think so. Sheep
1: talk, eh? <laughs> no, no, not this one. Not this show. Um, <laughs> let's go to Sarah. Sarah's in Constantia. We'll go to Shireen in Pinelands as well. Hi, Sarah. Good morning.
0: Uh, good morning, Kino and Doctor. Thank you so much for taking my course. Greatly appreciated it. Pleasure. Um, the metal taste in the mouth... Thank you, Dr. Paul, probing on this. I'll just quickly give a rundown of my experience. I have the metal test in my mouth at the moment and I'm a health professional. So worked during lockdown and COVID and all my patients that came to me that had, um, you know, uh, recovered from COVID or on the road to recovery, um, it's, uh, it, Explain this metal test in their mouth. And i had seen a number of patients that have had, you know, or experiencing or having the virus. And then um, on the 10th of October, I suddenly, you know, I had this persistent metal test in my mouth. And I thought, no, I must go for COVID testing. My patients have told me they have had the same experience and rushed off and I was positive. So this metal test in my mouth, many um, patients have told me about the experience and then suddenly, at bloater, I get the metal test in my mouth. So, um, doctor, if you could please probe on this one, I, I think it is definitely related yeah. to COVID.
2: That's a very interesting okay. observation yeah. and, in fact, uh, I can tell you that there is a, a number of res- well, there are a number of research groups going on around the world who are looking at a phenomenon called porosmia. When you have COVID, we know that about 60% of people get this abrupt loss of their sense of smell and taste. And this is because the virus infects, at least initially, via the cells on the olfactory epithelium, which is the layer of tissue at the top of your nose, where the smell receptors are. These are specialised cells that have uh, receptors on them that can can detect the smells coming in from your nose and also your mouth, and they send those smells to the brain, and we regard some of that input as taste. And if you infect those cells and damage them by virus infection, you lose the job that they can do for at least a while. Fortunately, about half of people get their smell and taste back within two weeks, but about 15% of people don't get it back for a long time. But another group of people who have this then go on to develop this condition, parosmia. And in parosmia, because of the damage to the nerve cells that subserve the sense of smell and taste, when they come back, they don't wire themselves up correctly. So certain smells and tastes begin to taste odd. And in some cases, they absolutely taste disgusting. And I've talked to one person who experienced this awful sensation where things that she loved to eat or loved to smell cooking just smelt nauseating and we don't know how long this is going to go on for people are actually exploring this to see how we can reverse this effect in people who seem to be afflicted because it can cause all kinds of problems you can imagine if if things that you like to eat now taste disgusting you don't want to eat properly which can have all kinds of implications for eating disorders so what they're doing to try to correct this is retraining people's smell systems and presenting people with smells that they can tolerate but which are strong recognizable sort of keystone smells and helping those people to re-educate their smell system and it does appear to be translating into some sort of recovery so thank you very much for pointing this out i hadn't considered that as a possibility and you're Mm. absolutely right there there may be some people who've got the distortion of their smell and taste making them taste funny things that aren't there because of coronavirus infection so thank you very much for highlighting that Sarah,
1: thank you very much for the question let's get hold of sakina in dip river hi sakina hi
3: Hi, good day, uh, Tino and uh, uh, Chris. A question Hi. about these and uh, turkeys. Why do they have a tendency to chase people for no apparent reason? <laughs> I was chased as a child, and my word did I have to run. <laughs> and I noticed that turkeys chase people. But know about Christmas, I think Turkish tend to, to chase people
1: even more. <laughs> Chasing people too if they try to eat you all the time. Um...
2: <laughs> They've got it right in that respect, haven't they? This is rapidly turning into the farmyard phone-in, isn't it? Um, well, the, the answer to this one is, we were saying that dogs are pack animals. They hang around in a big group and they can size up the opposition dogs are also territorial well geese are the same and they they live in a social group they look after each other they're in a flock so they're flock animals and and they know who their friends are they know who their potential enemies and predators are so geese tend to be very wary and they will defend their patch of turf and their their fellow animals and they do that by chasing off anything that might be a threat and we're certainly a threat aren't we because we like to turn them into christmas dinner
1: this is true very true indeed shireen in pinelands hi there shireen
3: um, hi Kino. Um My question is, how does the body handle artificial sweeteners? Ah. Because at first I thought it it was an it was an aftertaste, but I'm realizing now that it's definitely not an aftertaste. It's how my body. It's almost as if how my body is is processing the artificial sweetener, especially now that all the cool drinks have got this less sugar. Mm. I can't drink anything. Yeah. And it's been like this for almost, I've noticed it like 30 years ago, mm. you know, and and it just keep on like this. And I've heard other people also saying
1: that. When you say, how um, does your body react? So just, just give us an example, because, you know, there's a, there's a difference between, you know, an aftertaste and then your body re- reacting in a certain way. So just maybe paint that picture for us. What do, what do you mean your your body reacts in a certain way?
3: It's, it's almost as if um, the artificial sweetener is removing the sugar in my blood. It's almost like the same effect you get with an adrenaline drain on your sugar.
2: Okay. Um, Chris? Well, the way artificial sweeteners sweeten things is that they are molecules that are capable of docking with the same structure in your mouth that you normally would see activated by sugar, but they don't actually have any calories in them because they can't be broken down. In the same way that sugars can. A really good example is aspartame. This molecule is an aspartic acid and a methanol group. And when it goes into the mouth, it can activate your sweetness receptor on your tongue. The sweetness receptor isn't something that makes you kind of look sweet. It's something that actually makes your tongue say, what is in my mouth tastes sweet. And it activates the nerve fibers that uh, tell your, your, your brain this is a sweet taste. But when you send it down into your stomach, it just gets broken open into a couple of aspartic acid molecules and a bit of methanol. And it's such a tiny amount of methanol, it doesn't make any difference. So as a result of that, there are no calories or no appreciable calories in there compared to how many calories there are locked up in a glucose or a sucrose molecule, sugar molecules. And as a result, uh, you get all the taste, the sweet taste, but you don't get any of the calorie burden to go with it. Now, there are other consequences such as side side flavors and bitter flavors under certain circumstances. But compared with the sweetness effect, they're they're more m- minuscule and you don't notice them. So it's hard to see why if all the different sweetness molecules, because there are lots of different sweeteners that work in this way, why they would all produce this same sensation in you and make a real biochemical effect. So one wonders whether there might be something going on called the nocebo effect. And you might say, what on earth is that? Never heard of anything like that. Well, you've probably heard of the placebo effect, which is where if you think something's going to help you, then Often it does, and even if you give people sugar pills, um, not with sweeteners in them, and say they're painkillers, then people will get a dramatic reduction in pain that they experience because they believe they're doing something which is going to do them some good, so they get benefit, even though they're not actually doing anything that will help them chemically. But there's also the flip side of that, the nocebo effect, where if people take a drug, then very often they can get side effects from that drug because they believe they're going to get side effects. And in fact, the drug isn't producing the side effects at all, what it's actually doing is is activating the effect of the placebo effect where people believe they're going to get side effects so they experience the side effects they're expecting to get nothing to do with the drug it's their own expectation and this was tested last week there was a paper in the New England Journal of Medicine by James Howard what they did was to take people who were taking the drug statins statins lower your cholesterol level to reduce your risk of heart yep. attack and stroke they uh, got people who had stopped taking their statins because of side effects and this is a common problem with statins and they put these people back on statins some of the time but some of the time they gave them a placebo and they asked them to keep a diary of their symptoms and what they found is that the people's symptoms 90% of the time were the same when they were on harmless sugar pills as when they were on the statins so it was the people's own brain making up the effect of the side effect and that more than half the group were able to go back on their statins afterwards knowing that their symptoms were purely a psychological effect it's very real it's we're not belittling the effect but it wasn't because of the statin so they could go back on a a beneficial thing i wonder if what's happening here is that we've got a nocebo effect that uh, when you taste certain drinks and things because you expect it to taste ghastly and make you feel a bit weird that's what it's doing or it's nothing to do with the sweeteners at all, and perhaps it's the caffeine that's in these fizzy drinks, which does actually yep. produce a big surge of adrenaline in your body, and then leads you feeling leaves you feeling a bit of a crash afterwards. So it could be something nothing to do with the sweeteners.
1: Thank you very much for that. We'll move on to Barris. Good morning. Good morning.
3: Morning, morning, Chris. Is it in the animal kingdom is there any wits at play, or is it ultimately just the strongest is the survivor?
2: The answer is that it isn't always the strongest that will be the survivor. It will be the animal or the organism which is the best adapted to meet the challenges or demands of the environment in which it lives. And everybody is trying to carve out an existence using the energy on the planet that comes chiefly from the sun and a bit from the inside of the earth and everybody is using that energy or they're feeding off of somebody else who is and it's whoever has got the ability in a certain situation in a certain environment to do that optimally they will be the the survivor and because evolution is continuously happening in other words every every organism is evolving it is slowly changing and altering its appearance and under certain circumstances some of those alterations are going to make an, an organism even better at doing that so it's going to become even more successful in the next generation while others are going to be less successful so they're going to become someone else's dinner so it's not to do with wits so much it's more to do with the fact that that you can be endowed with a big brain Humans are successful at overrunning the planet the way that we do because we've been endowed, we have evolved to have a big brain, the ability to work as a group, the ability to forward plan, and therefore we can use those wits to drive the way in which our species has has changed. Other animals are endowed with a lot of innate knowledge and an ability to survive in very harsh conditions that other animals couldn't possibly encroach upon, so they have less competition that way because they can get into an area where there are animals that won't go and eat them because the other animals can't survive there.
1: Thank you very much. By the way, you are listening to The Naked Scientist. Clifford, sir, you get the final say, sir. Uh,
3: on the 1st of December now, coming up, There's an asteroid that's going to come within 50,000 kilometres of Earth. And uh, it's not a big one. But do they take the position of the Moon orbiting Earth into account when that asteroid goes past when they make the prediction?
2: Yeah, this this is something called the study of NEOs, or near-Earth objects. And uh, actually on Friday the 13th, yes, really Friday the 13th, an object that was 11 metres wide went whizzing through the Earth's atmosphere and then out the other side, and astronomers only picked it up the following day so some objects are only picked up once they are very close indeed others are bigger we know about them but researchers can model their trajectory but it's very hard to do to get it really really accurate until you've got a number of flybys or you've been tracking it for a long time because there are many factors that influence the trajectory of an object in space there is the tug of the planets nearby there's the tug of the sun there's the tug of the earth's gravity things like the moon going round and then there's even a really wacky effect called the yorp effect it's a yorp y-o-r-p which stands for yarkovsky oki radzievsky padak effect after the four scientists who described it and this is where light itself can push objects so if you've got an, an object whizzing through space and sunlight photons are hitting it the momentum from those photons actually gives the object a nudge and pushes it And that will change its course as well. This all has to be taken into account and can be quite hard to model. And for that reason, there's always uncertainty. So scientists will want to track these objects over a long course if they can, or a number of flybys, to make better approximations as to their likelihood of hitting the Earth. But there is a chance that that will happen, which is why there is a program, a formal program, to track so-called NEOs, near-Earth objects. And if we spot one that's on collision course with us, hopefully give us enough time to do something about it in the future.
3: Oh, we've well, got time is running out. <laughs>
2: <laughs> Hopefully not too fast. Not as fast as time is running out on this programme, though. I can, I can sense Keno looking at the clock. <laughs> uh,
1: thanks, right. uh, Clifford, have a good weekend. Eh? Cheers. All right, you too. Thanks, that's Clifford in Somerset West. And that leaves me with enough time to say, Chris... You've got 20 seconds to
2: say, thanks, Chris. <laughs> <laughs>
1: have a great weekend, Chris. All right, good then. To you next week. Yeah, see you uh, soon.